legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 66. I am Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Uh, so this is a live cast, our first one in quite a while. There was a delay there uh, between when I was talking and Jeff was, because we're actually sharing a mic. We are in San Francisco. It's the first time Jeff and I have been together for a while. And while we're here, we also have a special guest with us. Uh, today we have Greg Love of Whippering. Why don't you say hi, Greg? Hey, what's happening, everybody? It's good to have you here. It's great to be here. So uh, we've been working together, uh, especially on A Wizard's Lizard. Uh, we first met at uh, Casual Connect last year as part of uh, Indie Prize Showcase, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we, I think we've been making some real serious strides with the Wizard's Lizard. It's been uh, it's been really great. It's like head and shoulders above anything we've ever done before, uh, and that's super awesome. Um, but we want to hear about you. We want to hear about uh, you know how you got started in software, uh, where you're currently at, uh, what you're working on, and and where you're going. Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, we uh, we met at Casual Connect, and. Uh, Whippering, uh, the company that, that I started um, in order to, uh, the best way to think about it is to handle the, the business development side of, uh, of an indie taking uh, uh, their title to market. Right. Uh, just in PC and console. Uh, mobile is a completely different beast. Oh, yeah. And that's, uh, that's one area that uh, there's certainly a ton of companies that do this and is one area that I'm not familiar with just as a, a lover of all things games for, uh, for f- on the PC and, and console. Nice. Uh, so started the company uh, soon before I, I, I met with you guys. And it was, it was just to do that, to offer uh, business development services to small independent developers who um, create great, experiences create these fantastic games but maybe not uh maybe don't have the resources or their time to put to the marketing side the press uh, relationships the platform relationships all the hard stuff yeah all, all the all the fun stuff when it comes <laughs> to just mass emails and email campaigns and just like grinding it out to get in front uh to get your game in front of people totally um so it was one area that um uh, before i started whippering um i work at a company called yammer and i had the bd team there and yammer is an enterprise software company but i feel like there's a lot of parallels between uh, a lot of the stuff that we do on the business development side and on the platform side at yammer um that even though it was on the enterprise uh, uh software space that it translate well into any type of business development um and my personal passion and love for games i felt it was just a, a good way to, to go out start my own thing and see if i could start working with some uh, some good folks like yourself that's awesome um i'm particularly interested in hearing about you know what made you decide to to start your own thing like um were you just kind of getting you know not bored but you know you wanted to just have that entrepreneurial thing yeah the 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 biggest thing for me was that i've I, I love I love games. Yeah. I, I love video games. I have ever since I was a, a small boy, uh, trying to beat my brother in Super Tecmo Bowl on the NES and failing every time. Although he cheats, I don't of know course. if anybody's familiar <laughs> with that game. But you can use the San Francisco 49ers, and there's one play that is unstoppable, and he'd use that all the time. Um, my brother and I used to play uh, Mutant League football. Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and still to this day, I love old school games. And, um, and that's one of the areas in, uh, when, when we first started talking uh, that, that I think really spurred our relationship is our, is our love for uh, those old school, pretty 
increasingly high difficulty uh, games like the Castlevanias of the world. I remember we saw your, your website, which is very attractive, and uh, you should go to whippering.com right now. Well, wait till the show's over, but you should check it out. And I remember going to that and I was like, it felt like home, you know? You had like a Castlevania box art, you had Mega Man, like you mentioned a lot of the games that uh, like we played and loved growing up and it kind of, you know, set our foundation for what kind of games we wanted to build. So it was like a like-minded individual. That was, yeah. that was quite nice to see. And it was pretty rare at Casual Connect, I think, uh, to meet to meet you folks. Uh, and that was my first time going to Casual Connect and it, yeah. it was a great conference, but uh, uh, definitely more tailored towards uh, uh, the casual, uh, uh, not only uh, game, game creators, but also the casual audience, so a lot more of a mobile focus. Um, and you guys seem to be the edge case there, um, obviously with a, a handful of others. So it was, uh, it was great to, I think, find like-minded people out of that crowd. It really was. I mean, uh, we were joking with some other guys that were there that pretty much everyone that kind of came by our booth at Casual Connect was either trying to sell us ad middleware <laughs> or they were another indie developer themselves, right? And so it was... Uh, kind of an interesting conference for us after having done, um, what was it, California Extreme, which yep. was very like kind of direct to players. And so um, we had kind of gotten in just on a whim. I think we applied and they were like, sure, why not? Um, and we really have a lot of expectations. But yeah, meeting you there was, was a great stroke of luck because otherwise, you know, I, I kind of feel like there wasn't a whole lot of value at Casual Connect for our kind of a game necessarily. Um, obviously, just doing the demo and getting it out there is always beneficial, and meeting other developers is, is beneficial. Uh, but certainly, you know, we're not in the market for a lot of, you know, kind of casual tablet game market middleware, yeah, yeah. kind of stuff. And you're right; it seemed like that was like the vast majority. Like you, you went in, and it took me a while to actually find somebody who was creating games versus just um, offering type of discovery or, or platform services right. on Google Play or or the App Store. It was pretty interesting, though, that hallway with all of the Indie Prize Showcase people. There's a lot of really interesting games. Some of them were casual, but I think that a lot of them were kind of just kind of more in the middle. Yeah. You know, they weren't all, you know, kind of retro and hardcore like ours, but they weren't all like Bejeweled 17. <laughs> That's right. Match 3. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how did you end up going to Casual Connect? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I guess to, 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 to uh, fully answer your first question, so just uh, absolutely love love of games. Um, and still to this day, I try to always have a blend between like the old, uh, what I'm playing currently, uh, a blend of the old school and then something new. Like I just took down um, Zelda 2 recently, which I know you and I chatted about. Matt. That's a hard game. Yeah, I'm what, impressed. I, was, I went back and I can't beat it. Yeah. It would take like a lot of practice. <laughs> I'd have to train, you know. That's right. But there's all these games that I was, the, the difficulty was so high when I was younger that I I want to go back and like actually now accomplish and so you're like is it finish. as hard as i remember yes. or is it just that i was young and dumb yeah and sometimes it's a blend of both like yeah, zelda 2 yeah. is no joke like that was a tough game i've had both where i'm like i come back to a game and i'm like how was this ever hard and then likewise i come back to a game that i know i've beaten and i'm like what yeah i was some kind of super child <laughs> says the guy who's like unbelievably talented at spelunky that's every, right every challenge <laughs> completed yeah he's spelunky yeah um uh, so, so I try to have a blend of the old school and then, uh, uh, you know, something new, um, whether that's uh, uh, games like uh, uh, any games like uh, uh, what you folks are building or um, uh, something even more AAA, like sp the most recent Splinter Cell or something like that. I nice. always try to have a, a nice mix like that. Uh, but the whole reason I started Whippering was because of, of that love for games and just wanting to get involved. And at Yammer, we had um, 
Uh, we were a startup. I've been at Yammer for about four years now. We were a startup. Uh, the hours were crazy. Um, uh, and then uh, we've been acquired, and the, and the work uh, ha has still has shifted. It's still very busy, and we're, we're doing some great and meaningful stuff, but it's not nearly as... Um, a relentless uh, from a, from a work standpoint as it was prior to the acquisition. Right. So I had a bit more free time, and that coincided well. I, I could do several things with, with with my free time. I just could play more video games, which was certainly of high appeal. Yep. Or I could also just start a, a company, uh, 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 Moonlight, and, and and start a side company around video games, and just see if I can make that work. And so that's uh, that's how Whippering started, and that's how I made my way to Casual Connect. Was uh, started that company and then just figured, hey, I might as well go talk to some folks to see if there's actually interest in what uh, what I think I may be able to offer. That's that's a great plan, man. You just you just do it. Yeah. Like how do you want to get you want to get started on something? Then do it. Right. You know, people spend forever planning and you just execute it on it. That, and that was the hope. It was like, well, it, it's it's lightweight enough to get up to see if there's actually you know market interest or interest from from indie developers. And I have no professional gaming experience before, so it's not like I could take this idea to like a larger shop and and actually sell them on the idea because i'd be like oh wait well, you're an enterprise software like what are you talking about like what, what are you doing so yeah i just figured start it up see what uh see what we can make happen and that was really interesting because um i think that's one reason we get along so well and it was it's been good to work together is that we both kind of have that thing where you know matt and i are working at raptor and we're just like not enough gotta do something else you know yeah we're not happy unless we're just completely overwhelmed with <laughs> things to do right that's the entrepreneurial spirit is uh instead of you know having a hobby like we're not going to go and make pottery we're going to go and make a company or or make something that can you know at the at, at the end it can profit or somehow benefit us yeah or hopefully profit that's something you know like yeah yeah because you like it would be great like this is what i do for fun it would be great if i could do this full time and yeah. the path to that is uh i don't know win the lottery or you could make a business out of it and <laughs> <laughs> the business is risky too but it, uh, it's not as risky that's right. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Like the, the, the amount of personal interest that you have towards something. Like you, you can go several routes to, routes to do that. You can have that as your, uh, your full-time gig. And uh, you guys have, have certainly been able to do that, um, I guess, both at Raptor, but in a much more meaningful way with Lost Decade. Um, and then myself, you can you know, hopefully, uh, again, like spend more time personally just playing video games or actually just try to do something and, and be involved in the, in the actual business side of it. I'll do that sometimes where I'm like, uh, you know, the wife is out and I got the evening free and I'm like, um, I feel like doing something. And it's like, I could go for playing a game or I could go for working on my game. You know, they both sound about the same as far as entertainment and, and pleasure for me. So usually I focus on the game making because when I'm done, I will have had a good time and I'll have something to show for it. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I mean, you get stuff out of games like uh, sometimes I have a lot to show for it, like my Splunky achievements. <laughs> But uh, other times you're like, oh, yeah, I just spent three hours just banging my head against this level. and I didn't even get anywhere. <laughs> I hate my life. Right, right. Sometimes I love that. But other times I'm like, I want to push something forward too. you know, keep pushing that boulder up the hill or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, how did you get started in, uh, in the software and the business development industry? Like, did you, uh, did you go to college and get a degree in that field? Like most <laughs> people do not yes. <laughs> work in their, the field uh, that they got educated in. But uh, what's, your, what's your history? Yeah, there? yeah, great question. I, I guess uh, one, one important point there is business development at, uh, as a role and as a team varies widely uh, between uh, between companies, um, business development in an enterprise software company uh, in, at one company can mean something completely different at another company. And then if you do business development uh, at like a, a consumer company or anything outside of tech, um, 
business is very vague. It means a yes. lot of things. It gets, basically a lot just of people. means like money is changing hands. Yeah. Like the other day, <laughs> I, I, I met with somebody who just started there uh, at a startup, a very well-known startup. Uh, they just got their business development team started and they wanted to meet just to, to talk shop. And uh, they've structured their business development team solely around sales. So it's basically just like a, a sales role, um, which is you find, but um, uh, you, you oftentimes mostly business development uh, uh, is is thought of as, as long-term partnerships and stuff that uh, certainly is tied to revenue, but is much more uh, long-term and maybe uh, on a grander scale than just any one individual deal. Uh, but it varies widely across the board. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I did get a degree in, in business, but that's uh, completely uh, not relevant to, to what I do today. Interesting. Uh, but went to school in San Diego and then moved up to the Bay Area about five years ago and um, wasn't in technology and just absolutely fell in love with the excitement around what was going on in, in tech and was able to, to make the move to Yammer. Um, and then about a year into my time here, we started a business development team and I was able to, to join that team and has been here ever since. Nice. Yeah. So uh, Microsoft enveloped enveloped Yammer. Yes, that's right. About how, a year and a half ago now, which is crazy. So you're part of Microsoft. Is, is, is that how it feels, or is it still like a pr- gradual process? Uh, it still feels like we're Yammer. Right um, uh, we are. Microsoft has done a fantastic job to um, to incorporate us, and then also. Um, I think they knew that they had a, uh, a perception problem uh, in, in the Bay Area, and so they've gone above and beyond to create a fantastic work environment uh, uh, and to keep us very independent, especially on the engineering and the product side, um, to make our own decisions but uh, become a lot more aligned with, uh, uh, with some of their uh, uh, software and products as well. Right. Um, but it's changed because we are, you know, the check I get twice a month does come from Microsoft now, but we are still very much an independent company. And it's been the best of both worlds, actually, because you still have Yammer from a culture standpoint, and then you have this massive, absolutely massive resource within Microsoft in which you just can leverage all sorts of uh, all sorts of things, whether that be uh, financial or just uh, actual human capital to, to, to bring in and, and move the ball forward on any particular project. I think it's interesting too, because um, you know, kind of back to what we've been doing together. Early on, you know, we kind of thought that maybe you know, ooh, Xbox One. Greg works no. at Microsoft, right? <laughs> it's funny how it really didn't turn out to to work that way. You know, I think early on you talked a lot about how, especially at a big company, and this is true even if you know you're just part of like Yahoo or something. That it's not always easy just to get connections at some other department. You know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, I think like we joked together early on when we were when we did go after uh, very uh, I guess two Microsoft platforms, the the uh, Xbox One and Xbox 360. Um, I joked it was actually more difficult being on the inside to get it connected to the appropriate right, yeah. person on the Xbox team than it was if it were the outside coming in. Uh, but but yeah, it, it, it's tough. I mean, um, at Yammer at the time of acquisition, I think we were roughly 500 people, and Microsoft is over uh, 105,000 employees. So it's a, uh, it's no joke. <laughs> so you're like a, this tiny fish in a in a big pond. Yeah, yeah. A pond of Microsoft. That's right. So really, like trying to identify the appropriate person uh, on the platform side at, at Microsoft is the same exercise for for me uh, as if we're trying to find that appropriate person at Nintendo, Sony, uh, Steam, uh, you know, the various larger platforms. It's interesting. Um, I, Matt and I both worked at Yahoo, which I think was about fourteen thousand people. I can't even imagine. 105,000 employees. Yeah. That's it's mind-blowing. It's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Well, and one of the things uh, that, that's uh, 
been great but was a concern as soon as we got acquired is on the on the business development front at yammer um uh, we own uh the platform and uh that means that we integrate with a lot of other uh technologies out there um and it's very likely that Microsoft has a competing product with some of the various people who have built onto our platform. Uh, but they uh, they stated this right when they acquired us, and um, and they've certainly held true to this uh, uh, and to their credit, which I, I think uh, other companies um, may have not had such a, a liberal and, and open-minded policy, where they have not. Uh, we've still partnered. Uh, uh, we haven't changed any of the partnerships. Um, uh, that we've had pre-acquisition and we've partnered with competitors to Microsoft products partner uh, post-acquisition, and they haven't uh, uh, mucked or, or had any influence on that. Um, they've been very uh, open and, and encouraging on that front, which is which is really great to see because that was definitely a main concern to be like, there's no way in which we can build our partnerships because literally Microsoft competes in everything. Right? Yeah, they're they're touching <laughs> almost everything. That's and why right. wouldn't they? Right? Like, they have the resources. Yeah, yeah. But. Uh, so let's talk a little about the things that we've done from a indie game business development and marketing kind of perspective. Um, I think that we probably can't talk too much about some of the deals we've tried to get with these console uh, makers and things like that. But um, what do you, what was your process going to try and like set up these meetings? Yeah, yeah, sure. So so for a bit more context for everybody, the. Uh, we mentioned this before, but uh, with Whippering, we try to offer uh, a lot of those business development uh, type activities for, for indie developers. And usually that's focused uh, mostly on uh, platform relationships and then, uh, and then press um, and, and the strategies around uh, uh, two areas. So within the platform side, uh, as I mentioned, it's tough to find those appropriate people uh, uh, at any company, whether that be Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo. Uh, or, or Steam or, or whatever platform you're, you're looking to launch on. And so our goal is to at least identify those appropriate people and then get get the game, whoever we're working with and with whatever studio we're working with, at the table for those conversations uh, with the appropriate team on, on, uh, from that from that platform company side uh, to see if there is a fit. Um, there's not a whole lot we can do to, to to get a yes or to get a green light after that, but it can be so tough just to identify those those pe- those appropriate folks on 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 the other end of the uh, of, of the email chain or the conversation. So if we can at least get those various parties together and get the get a particular indie game visibility. Um, we hope good things will come from that, but it can be very tough to even get to that point. And so that's the, yeah. hopefully the value that we can add is to, to get games to that point. And that's an immense thing of value. I mean, for people that a lot of indie developers are probably engineers at heart and, you know, they don't have a lot of experience or training or ability to, you know, tap into their network to get these meetings, obviously. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that, you know, you as a company, you know, as Whipring would have these ins that you can provide to people over the course of, you know, working with different providers and different games, you know? Um, so that, that holds a lot of value. Yeah. And that's the hope. And to, to your point, like there's, there's nothing that we do that's, that's, that's magical. I would say like, there's no, Oh, we've got these, these crazy ways in which we navigate and, and, and there's some like secret sauce that we have that, that nobody else could figure out. But, uh, but, but you can do, you can do certain things well. Um, uh, but, but what we offer uh, can can certainly be done by by individual studios themselves. It's just it can take a lot of time, a lot of resource, and a ton of commitment. 
in this type of role, there's always a fine line that you that you have to walk uh, where you're not annoying, uh, but you're thoughtfully, I call it thoughtfully persistent. Um, and that's what it takes to, to really get, to, to move the ball forward in many cases. Like if you imagine um, the, the folks on the platform side at, at Microsoft or Nintendo or Sony, uh, they are these massive, we've already talked about the size of, of Microsoft, but this holds true for the other companies too. They're these very large organizations with a very large team and they may not move nearly as quickly as one would hope or as one certainly does as, a, as an indie shop. Um, so being able to consistently uh, uh, provide uh, visibility uh, letting them know you're there and what your interests are um, can be a fine line to walk so you don't cross over into being annoying, uh, but it's absolutely necessary in order to to move the ball forward and, and again, hopefully get the game at its best spot with the relevant people to make that decision as to whether or not it's a fit for the platform. Yeah, it's a tricky dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One that you're used to, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that we've both been able to um, connect each other with uh, with great, like, a, you know, connect our networks, basically, and bring in people that, like, uh, like, like we didn't know, like, people you knew that we didn't, and vice versa. Yeah. And, like, enable, able to connect those dots, because sometimes there's, like, we'll have someone we've been talking with, like, we've got a lot of people that we talk to regularly that we don't really have any plans to work together, but there might be something that you had, and, like, oh, that'd be a good fit. And that's where a lot of these, like, uh, these deals come from, relationships happen, is, like, you went off by one or like a friend of a friend yeah. or like it's just really just expanding your network and there's there's so much value there you know like your average uh gamer probably never would have heard of team meet if they didn't have this great deal with microsoft to be on the you know there's a summer sale or whatever yeah you know like like that <clears throat> there was a first step to that you know like they were at a table and it moved forward you know like uh just establishing that you know there had to have been a connection somewhere yeah it's absolutely. interesting to see that and these type of things, like uh, like so many things in, in, in business or just in life, there's so many outside variables that, that can affect like things actually coming to fruition. Um, but as best you can, and uh, whether it's grinding it out or just doing thoughtful work to, to best position a particular game or, or, or your game in order to, to, to hopefully have those stars aligned and things to move forward is, uh, yeah. is really the best you can do. Yeah, like uh, what is that? Success is... Um getting lucky while being prepared there's a saying there but i, I I'm that, that sounds good yeah i don't i'm not sure <laughs> that's, that's it but that's, you, you that's quote me on that <laughs> <laughs> i cannot memorize expressions so i make them up it's like a similar similar expression <laughs> um so after we met at uh indie price showcase uh we got together and we're talking about just hey how can we work together and um so at the time it was crypt run right oh that's yes back then yeah uh the rebranding of that yes yeah <laughs> the rebranding of that to a wizard lizard took place a little bit after that but um so yeah we were talking about uh crypt run and how to like work together to to have a good launch and and all that stuff so uh yeah I was, uh, i'm interested in in like your process because that's that's kind of a, a difficult thing you know it's like we have a game we want to launch we don't know what to do like how do we get as many gamers as possible to know about this game and hopefully buy it you know like that's a that's a really overwhelming and nebulous task yes. you know it's like sometimes you don't even know where to begin it feels like you're shouting into the abyss you know um and i think you've done a great job like we've got uh, we run rock paper shotgun joystick um polygon like some some really remarkable coverage better than anything we've ever seen uh just far and away and uh, I think the results are there. And uh, yeah, interested in uh, in the process. Yeah, well, first and foremost, it was great to, I think we, we had a really fantastic and open relationship because totally. Whippering was brand new and it was like, hey, here, here guys, this is what I think is a good route to go, but like open to input, like <laughs> maybe, is, yeah, <laughs> thoughts. Um, but I thought I thought we did a really good, uh, good job uh, uh, of creating, I, I, 
Uh, on the platform side, we initially uh, decided, okay, why don't we start being as aggressive as possible for the ones that we think are, are a fit, and we'll just try to make those relationships and, and see what, uh, what we can do. And so we immediately started working on that. And we were able to go down that track and, and see some success um, and, and some, uh, some failures, um, but we at least were enabled to, to, to immediately execute on, uh, on trying to, to find a fit there. The press stuff and where, we, uh, as you mentioned, we've, se- we've seen some decent success. Uh, we looked at it and said, okay, when can we get that preview build out? Um, right. And we, we, we kind of use that as a stake in the ground to say, great. We've got this preview build out, and so we'll do a mass outreach uh, uh, about that preview build, hopefully get preview coverage in various different uh, uh, gaming press outlets and, and what I'll hit on shortly, even more importantly, uh, streamers. Um, right. And then we'll do the same thing, but uh, more aggressively and on a larger scale for the final build. So it's kind of this, this two-pronged strategy just on the stress front, uh, press front, excuse me. Stress equals press yeah. and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> press stress. So in leading up to that, it was a, uh, a, a lot of work of identifying every uh, press outlet, gaming press outlet, um, aggregating that information to just a shared Google Doc. Uh, and we did that both for, again, the traditional gaming press and then uh, uh, streamers both on the, uh, on the YouTube and the Twitch side. And then um, what ended up being a, a, a bit challenging and, and certainly a bit time intensive was actually trying to find the uh, appropriate uh, or accurate uh, email information or contact information for a lot of those folks. Uh, you'll get various sites that make that very public and easy to gather. Uh, and then you'll get many sites that just hold that stuff uh, very close to the chest and, and, and don't, uh, uh, aren't very forthcoming with that information. So once you're able to aggregate all of that, it was, uh, I think, I for the for the preview build, I spent a week and just targeted Tuesday through Wednesday, uh, excuse me, Tuesday through Thursday, uh, some blend in, into Friday uh, on just sending out mass communication about the game, but I personalized each one. Um, it was it was a lot of manual work, like that's one thing I definitely wanna try to hopefully uh, have a better solution for, but I didn't use any like marketing, uh, like Marketo or any like these uh, email marketing machines. And I felt that was kind of necessary too as a, as a first exercise to, to get the, the game out there is just to be very close and ensure that it's, uh, you're personalizing that type of outreach and, and it's, not, it's not automated and that, it's, uh, uh, and, and that folks on the other end of the, who are receiving these uh, emails know that it's not automated as well, so they know there's an actual human being who's put thought and care into that email. Right. Well, that's good for you because, you know, the more that Whippering can develop more close personal relationships with these kinds of outlets, you know, it's just gravy for your business, right, to have those those kinds of contacts. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that you did early on um, before you did the press outreach, I think that we kind of took our shared press lists and we kind of merged them into one, and then I think you had started to just feel them out right away. You sent some emails to like the bigger outlets and you were asking like, how do you like to receive games? You know, what can we do to make this easy on you? Great point. Yeah. And and, uh, that was incredibly helpful. So uh, independent of uh, this was just whippering. uh, So independent of of the work we were doing uh, together with Lost Decade. Uh, I just reached out to every outlet uh, uh, and everyone between this the, this massive uh, uh, press, YouTuber, Twitch list, and just said, what's the best way to deliver you a game? Is there any particular pieces of information, press kit, uh, details, builds? How do, how do you best like this delivered? Um, and I think that was very helpful on, on two fronts. Number one, you obviously got a lot of data points for various folks as to how they would like to receive uh, or, or have a, a packaged product delivered to them. Um, and then you also were able to establish a, a bit of a relationship with them as you uh, as we look to actually 
deliver them a game. So when uh, when we had uh, Crypt Run initially as the preview build, and then a Wizards Lizards with the final build uh, later on, there was at least some communication and some precedent set between uh, Whippering and those uh, folks on the receiving end, uh, so it just wasn't out of the blue. And I think those were those were really two helpful things to uh, 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 to have. And we haven't been able to quantify if uh, like what this what the impact of that was, but um, I feel it was good. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but it, but I definitely think it helped. I mean, if you think <laughs> about someone walking up to you and being like, uh, you know, like I walk up to somebody, hey, I'm Matt, how's it going? You know, like that's going to get a better reaction on average. Me walking up and being like, hi, buy my game. Write about it. <laughs> write right. about my game. You know, because <laughs> like that's how we've done it before. Because it's like it's just how you do it. Like I want to email people about my game. That just seems like the most obvious step. But you kind of you kind of like fertilize the ground. You know. Yeah. And that, I think that's an important note because it's like uh, launching a game just feels like okay, I launched it and I send out a bunch of emails and like you know prior to us working together, that's that was our process. <laughs> but it's this multi-step thing. You know, it's like you got to examine the the surrounding area, fertilize the ground, and like. Uh, you were also doing this process where you'd like you would examine uh, every outlet and e- even individual people like at a publication or whatever and see like oh hey this person likes you know uh, action RPGs this yep. person's a big Zelda fan like this is a good choice for a Wizards Lizard um, promotion this person might be interested whereas you know someone's like I, I've played nothing but first person shooters like not going to be interested in our game right, so like right. yeah just this massive spreadsheet and I've, I've seen a, some of those before um, but even that can be overwhelming because there's so much data there and it's not always as simple as like, you know, oh, a checkbox here for like, yes, they're interested or like, you know, yellow because they said they're a little busy, but kind of interested. It's like sometimes there's this big old notes like, okay, this person wanted to let me know that if, uh, if the, you know, if it uses the gamepad, they'll play it. And if not, they hate me forever. Like, <laughs> that's right. It's, it's an overwhelming amount of data. And it's like, because it's about people, it's so personalized and it's so complex. Uh, but it's been interesting to see that too, like this this massive combining of our spreadsheets and all the data that has has come out of that. Yeah, I, I remember when you guys sent it over to me. I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" And then I re- I quickly realized, okay, this is great to have all of this information that I that I didn't have uh, previously because I think there were uh, you know uh, I, I can't even remember the quantity, but about fifty percent uh, new contacts that I was able to add to that to my list. But then it was still uh, very important. It was great to, to have the uh, certain contact information, but you still, it was important for me to go through the exercise, as you mentioned, to find out if there are any particulars uh, for the particular person at the outlet or that outlet in general that are going to be meaningful when we actually start the outreach uh, for a particular game. And it's really necessary to go through that because you don't want to find yourself in a situation and, and, and again, it can be very time intensive, but where you send a particular genre of a game to somebody at an outlet who has no interest in that when there would have been somebody who's at uh, that same outlet that is uh, that genre is right up their alley and you would have increased the likelihood of getting covered. Um, so it was, it was a lot of, uh, it, it was great to get that, that overall spreadsheet completed, uh, but it was a lot of, uh, a lot of work, but a lot of uh, a lot of fun to just I think get something that that I felt very comfortable from a quality standpoint when we knew that when we had that preview build and then certainly when we had that final build um, that we had a, a solid plan to to who we were going to target and when we were going to target them. I think that's yeah one of the key points here is that we actually thought about spent time kind of identifying the big players that we really wanted to land um, press wise and like really you know sending them probably the most personalized emails i would yeah. imagine <laughs> that's right um but yeah it's it, like you said there's no magic bullet a lot of it comes down to just a lot of this very hard work of 
identifying all the players that you care about and the influencers in the industry, whether they're press or they're streamers or whatever, and then trying your hardest to develop personal connections with them. Yeah. And you know, there's no easy, there's no easy route for that. Like you're saying, it's like, you just have to go through and attack everyone. And hopefully now that you've done it once, you know, you know, that's kind of like a done task. (laughs) That's the hope. So that's the hope, right? You you don't have to add new people and then connect with them. And a lot of these existing you know, contacts, you could just be like, Hey, remember me? Right. We do this game. Right. Although it's key. So, so, uh, th- that's the hope. And I, and I think there are some relationships that are certainly uh, solidified at this point. Um, but even if I look at the amount of work that went in from, uh, the preview build that we sent out to, to all the press, uh, uh, and YouTubers and, and Twitch folks and, and the final build, uh, there's two points there that I guess I'd like to make. We we may have not seen a lot of coverage on the on the preview build, but and again we haven't quantified this, but it was also very helpful just to to plant that awareness. And I think we we probably saw more success with the final build because of uh, our earlier outreach on the preview on the preview build side. And then uh, where an additional uh, layer of work came in is that if we did hear back from folks on the preview build, whether they covered it or whether they were interested for it uh, once the uh, once the complete build was done, you then had to take that into consideration when you reached out to them for the for the final build. So it wasn't again just like looking at a list and you know copying pasting pasting and, and putting out a mass distributed you know distributed email. Uh, it was still personalizing each one, and then folks would oftentimes would come back with you with tips on uh, what they'd like to see in the final build or how they would like that to li- delivered, which was different than how they maybe stated uh, uh, their preferred delivery be- uh, method earlier. And so there was just a lot of looking back to saying like, okay, great. We heard from this person. They either covered it or they didn't cover it, but they mentioned something else. So now let's add that to that final build email. So there's a lot of personalization in each email. We were talking about how it's like this, there's like layers to it, you know, like, like let's say uh, your first email, the person's just too busy. You caught them at a bad time, but, but they saw it, you know, and they'll remember yeah. keywords. Like, especially if you have a name that kind of jumps at you, like a, liz- a wizard's lizard, right? And they might see like two emails from you and they're like, you know, they glance over, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, like maybe they didn't cover a wizard's lizard at all, you know, but they will remember key points. They'll remember you, they'll remember the game, they'll remember maybe the company name, whatever. And then next time, you know, it's, it's like this, uh, this progressive thing sometimes. It's like, even though, like when you do measure it and we're like, oh, you know, the coverage wasn't as great as we thought it would be, but like the next project that either of us does has a better chance because that person, you know, has heard of us both. Yeah. And and sometimes that's the way it works. You know, like you've got, let's say you've got a buddy who's been asking you to hang out or something and you're like, ah, I'm busy, busy, busy. And then like, they'll get you eventually, you know? And sometimes it's the kind of thing. It's just like right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. And we've heard from uh, from from press folks at some of these larger outlets who have uh, who have affirmed just that, where they where they state, "Hey, we may not get you to that that first time or that second time, but but keep trying." Like get, getting mindshare. Like at some point, it connects the dots for them, and so they're able to to to, to reference uh, maybe some of the earlier communication that you sent out uh, to them, and that will hopefully uh, result in actually coverage uh, some type of coverage. It's also interesting to um, also target some of the smaller players. We've kind of seen this a little bit. It's, again, hard to quantify the results. But, um, you know, we tend to think that some of the larger publications, they keep an eye on some of the smaller publications, you know. And it's that same effect that Matt was just talking about where you hear about it once, you hear about it twice, you hear about it three times. Now you're maybe interested. Yeah. Especially if it's coming from third parties. I think that's really interesting. You know, like you get an email from the developer. You're like, okay, they have this game, whatever. Then you see it on another side. You're like, oh, I remember someone emailed about this game. This is interesting. Um, and that works for consumers too, right? Like, it's just, I think a lot of it is just 
getting your game into as many channels as possible, get people talking about it, and then it kind of has that network effect, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a good point. Like we definitely targeted, um, we had certain tiers of uh, uh, of the various press outlets and streamers that we wanted to target, but um, uh, or that we did target, but. But we hit everybody, both both small outlets to the to the biggest ones out there, and no bias. Yeah, absolutely not. Please cover us, even if you you know are. It's very obvious that you don't have a large user base. Like coverage was coverage, and it was great to have. I think like uh, what you'll see with people is there's like some people you email them once and you send them the game and you reach out and they love it immediately and they cover it right away and it's just perfect and absolutely great. And like that is not your average, you know, like that, that's not what usually happens. Uh, but what can happen is like you, you, you wear them down. You're like, this has happened with me. I'll like, I initially hear about a game and I look at some screenshots and I'm like, okay, it's medieval fantasy, but it doesn't really look interesting to me. And I'll see it covered three more times and I'm like, mm, you know, and then I'll see something else like, oh, it's two bucks off today. And I'm like, okay, like finally they, they wore me down. Like they, they got through, they cracked that nut, you know, yeah. got through my armor. And like, sometimes that's what it takes is like persistence. And like, I've seen that in my own buying patterns and it's gotta be the same for people who just, like these people in charge of these large publications, they probably get hundreds of emails a day, you know? And they might even see yours and it's like this great email, it's perfect, it's custom tailored for them and it's like, hey, and they're like, eh, but they're just so busy, you know? Yep. Like they like it, they see it, they're aware of it, but they got 50 other emails to check that day and like, but you might make a dent in their armor. All right, it's a, it's a really good point. Like. It, and it's it's a good it's a good mental exercise to go through, and it's unfortunate, but you the amount of emails that you'll send, you know, uh, for for at least that email, the percentage uh, or the likelihood of it actually resulting in something for for at least that one is is the odds are against you, right? But that next email increases those slightly, and then the, the follow up will will continue to increase that. Right. So the hope is is that by the time that you go through all of these, that that you've again you've positioned the game, whether that be like I was mentioning earlier with the platform folks or within the press to to succeed or to be in the best position to get coverage, right. uh, the best position to succeed. So uh, we like you were saying, it's hard to quantify, but we saw um, some some coverage for the preview build, but we weren't actually even like we didn't really even want that much coverage for the preview like we wanted the game to be for sale but like we didn't put an embargo on anybody right like when you were contacting him it was just like you know here's a preview here's the date we just kind of gave them all the information they can use it however they want and some people did cover the preview and others didn't but uh like we were saying it probably made for a better launch um and jeff and i were really surprised so we launched a wizard's lizard this year on uh january 22nd <clears throat> it was a wednesday right yeah yeah, and uh, from day one, we were we were pleasantly surprised. Like some really good, I think Joystick was day one. We had some really good coverage. Um, and then the entire first month went really well. And I think a lot of that was because of like, you know, fertilizing the ground and then setting the preview out there and just, you know, repetition, reminding people and they're aware, very, very clear and upfront about the date. Um, yeah, so then it launched. And then what we noticed was like um, pretty good, you know, uh, pretty good day one sales. And it had that tail that kind of starts to deplete a little bit. And then we had uh, some uh, streamer coverage. I think the first one was Cobalt Streak, right? First big one. The yeah. first, yeah. There, there were like it, it's hard to say because there are a lot, a lot like streamers and YouTubers. Um, even now, that is a really big ecosystem, and there's there's players of every different size. There are people I, I see they they tweet at us and they'll have a stream going, and there's like one viewer, or someone will tweet at us and there's a stream going, and there's like two thousand viewers. Like it's like the full spectrum. And then it goes all the way up to huge people like, you know, Yogscast and uh, Total Biscuits who, you know, millions, like it's a, it's a big, it's like an ocean yeah. of streamers and YouTubers. Um, so I don't mean to downplay anyone and I apologize for that, but like uh, the, the ones that, the ones that impact sales, like, like we'll see like, 
if we're not even aware that the stream's happening, like it just didn't get bubbled up to us, no one told us or anything, like we might be like, we check the sales and we're like, whoa, yesterday there was like a 300% bump in sales. Like what, what happened there? I mean, when we're talking small numbers on that. <laughs> 30,000 sales yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're, they're small numbers, but we'll notice a bump. And we're like, where'd that bump come from? Yeah. And, you know, that's how we find uh, the streamers sometimes. And um, that was the first one we noticed where it was like, whoa, look at that. Like, very noticeable bump. And um, sometimes it's hard to say, like, so how did, like, I would love to ask them, but they're they're pretty overwhelmed too. Like, how did you find the game, you know? Was it, was it one of the, like, you know, end number of emails Greg sent? Did you see it on you know, one of the bigger or smaller publications? Like, I'm always interested in how people find the game. Yeah, well, I think we saw, um, we saw quite a few, once it started to get pick up and, and receive some popularity on on some, uh, even the smaller uh, streamer channels, um, to the more moderately popular ones, to, to the bigger ones like, like Cobalt Street, um, we often, uh, uh, we, there were some, to some level of, uh, of frequency, emails directly to you folks, um, and that you copied me on, and that I had already reached out to those people. And so it, it was, they had, uh, they had heard of the game, they didn't realize they'd already received the bill, or they just ignored my email, but then saw it from one of the other streamers and reached directly out to you folks. Uh, so we did see some of that. Um, I know with like Cobalt Streak, it was, uh, and, and that like, it, Again, all, as you mentioned earlier, like the the amount of coverage that we received, I think was w- exceeded our expectations in, in in many regards, and and the amount of coverage that, uh, and impact the streamers w- w- had were, uh, I don't know if we're going to dive into the details there, but that was just overall like incredibly positive. Um, but like with Cobalt Streak, I, I, it was one of one of the great examples where best the best of my ability, I could not find his email address and ended up sending him a Twitch message. And for everybody listening, like if you can't get the email address, like it's hard enough to get a response via email. If you're going YouTube or Twitch messaging, like you, like the likelihood of getting a response there is incredibly low. Uh, but he responded, and it was fantastic. And then we ended up just creating this dialogue, and then um, from that, I think we uh, got into even a, a large uh, somebody else who, who had more eyeballs on their channel picked it up, and it was uh, the impact of the streamers. And I know this is a, this is a bit of a tangent, but was just so important and i don't want to downplay the fact that we got some good uh uh, press coverage on the on the traditional uh gaming front like you had mentioned earlier matt but the streamers were just just it was it was a really important decision that we made early on to target those folks equally and i'm really glad that we did i'm really glad we did too i i think that a lot of it comes down to like authenticity of opinion i mean when you talk about gaming word of mouth from your friends usually is a big driver of game popularity and sales. You know, if Matt comes to me and is like, you got to play this game, you know, I'm going to play it. It's kind of like, I think that when we met you at casual connect, we were both like Spelunky, Spelunky, Spelunky. And you were like, <laughs> I just checked this game out. Like these guys, you know, are obviously kindred spirits and like they like the same kind of game. So I would probably love this game. That's right. And I bought it. I think that not, not yeah. after, but it's, you know, streaming has that kind of value, right? I mean, press has that value too. I mean, there's very respected press writers and people that read their articles say, you know, oh, like, you know, so-and-so thought this was a great game, like John Walker at, at RPS or something, you know, like what I think. I'm sure people respect that opinion very highly, but there's something about the streaming personalities that I think people like really connect with. <clears throat> um, it's kind of like we talk about the podcast sometimes about the kind of connection you have with your listeners or your viewers or whatever. It's more personal than just reading words. You know, if you hear them speak or you can interact with them in some way, um, it creates this connection where mm-hmm. you are almost more likely to follow their advice. You know, and, and so getting these people to talk about the game is 
so invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. And then if, to your point, like even if you're like if you just look at what they do, where they're visual, uh, they're they're actually providing commentary while they're playing the game, and that is, in my opinion, and I think the the market's been able to respond to this to uh, to and and validate this. That's a lot more of an engaging way to to look and evaluate a game um, versus an article. Um, uh, both are very valuable uh, in, in their own right, but actually seeing that game that game played with very engaging commentary is just a very enjoyable experience for for folks and uh the more popular ones have these massive channels and massive popularity because of that there's definitely a lot of different ways to find out about a game and they all have their use case you know like uh some like a like a prolific journalist on something like joystick or you know games game spot or something they can write an article and they're you know they're heavy influencers they have a lot of readers who respect them and uh, it can look on the surface like a like a Twitch streamer or a YouTuber might have more influence than, than that writer uh, on the surface because we'll see like the traffic is crazy. But like there's a big difference between like we saw one article on Joystick, but we saw say for example like Lethal Frag Twitch streamer he he streamed for six hours. So like imagine <laughs> if that same you know Joystick journalist wrote an article that took you six hours to read. You know, just talking about their, uh, like his or her entire experience with the game. Like, it's not a totally fair comparison because there's so like the the streaming and the, and the YouTubing. There's so much content there, and um, so yeah. So that was the next one. Is uh, maybe like a week after we saw the Cobalt Streak um, spike. Actually, I think uh, Lethal Frag um, emailed us. It was like the he probably heard about it. Like he could very easily have heard about it through many of your outreaches. And then the kind of thing, like, why did you ignore my initial email? <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but that was interesting to see too, because he, he wanted us in the chat uh, as developers, like answering questions and stuff. And like, that was a crazy experience. Um, like not to downplay Cobalt's achievements or anything, but uh, Lethal Frag at the time uh, did have a, like a, I don't know, maybe double the audience, like like much much larger, and because uh, we we with Cobalt Street Streak, we were already very impressed with the audience size and the interest, and and really glad to see it. And then Lethal Frag, just like wow. And when we were in that, um, when he was live streaming, it was a Friday night, and his his chat was open, and we were in there, and he gave us you know moderator privileges, which means we can post like URLs, and so like just constant chats and, and people are asking us about the game and talking about the game and we were just posting you like like steam green light voted up and wizardblizzard.com <laughs> buy the game and like it was it, it just felt like this rich vein of of value because you could we put a link to like oh hey follow us on twitter we just put a link in the chat and it just scrolls by because everybody's chatting and we go and we look and there's eight new twitter followers and we're like whoa it's yeah. just so rich and like a lively audience of gamers you know and the frequency of activity in that chat, like it, like you mentioned, you put a link in, and it, like all of a sudden it would be it would be buried because there was just uh, so active. Yeah, it, which was fascinating to see. Like, it was. Just, it was so so eye opening to see the amount of uh, not only uh, of eyeballs, uh, 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 but also the amount of engagement from those people that were actually tuned in. That was yeah. very impressive. So so Lethal Frag is very interesting to me. Um, he did this uh, two-year challenge, and that's, I think, how he got as a first audience, like how he established himself as a, as a Twitch streamer, is uh, two years ago-ish, I think it's been a little over that now, but uh, his two-year challenge, he was going to stream every single day for two years. That's that's a beast, you know? Like, every like no vacation. I think he was doing eight hours a day, too, but whatever the case, that got him a lot of attention, and he completed that challenge recently, and now it's like he's got a sponsor, and yeah. it's his full-time job, and that is so fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, we, we've seen uh, the power that that audience can hold. And it really is that kind of thing where like people subscribe 
uh, to his channel and they pay him like monthly, they support him and uh, these people, they probably feel like he's a really good friend. Like, you know, I, I see Lethal talking and playing games more than some of my own friends in real life. Like right. the people who subscribe and watch every night, you know? <laughs> and when a friend of yours is like, hey, you want to hang out with me for two hours while I play this game and talk about it? Like, you're going you're gonna to be interested. Unless, <laughs> unless it's completely not your taste. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, if a buddy of yours talking about it and you seem to be having a good time, like, we've seen how powerful that is. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think it also is a testament to, to Wizard Lizard. It's a... It records very well. That's not going to be the case for for all games, but it was one that that I think uh, I, I know I referenced this earlier, and we decided to put so. I, I still remember the email, Matt. You'd like you'd send me a link to somebody either at GDC last year or maybe it was PAX talking about the importance of YouTubers to their green light campaign, and I'm forgetting the name of the developer in the game, um, but you specifically called out. You're like, I think this is going to be very relevant for us. For a couple reasons, I just think this is where the industry is going, and uh, and also I think at that time it was Crypt Run. We think Crypt Run records very well, and I remember watching that and just being like, "Oh my word!" Because he was able, the guy, the guy, and and hopefully maybe we can follow up with a link to this. Um, but he's able to provide like some some really uh, specific numbers to the amount of uh, of impact he saw, and I'm really glad that happened because. We, we shifted our strategy to hold equal weight on the on the YouTuber and the stream uh, and the overall streaming front. And again, I think that's where we saw the most impact from. And so uh, you can't overstate the importance of those folks. <laughs> you can't. And I think what's interesting about the streamers is that, especially at the level that we're playing at, it's pretty easy to quantify the number of sales that were a direct result of either uh, a Cobalt Streak or Lethal Frag because they had such a big impact on our sales graph um, and it's such a short time period um, usually what would happen is that uh, we would be talking in the chat and then they would be talking up the game and then many people would buy it right then and there and then the next day there would also be a big spike from people that had seen it and thought about it and then maybe decided you know I'm gonna buy this game um, but it's it's definitely a very big spike uh, these kinds of streams where you see like a huge increase and then a, a pretty steep fall off yeah but the nice thing about that is you can almost directly attribute you know x sales during this <clears throat> two-day time period to this specific event uh, and that has a lot of value obviously like figuring out where you should spend your time and your effort targeting you know these kinds of people yeah absolutely um, another thing i think was interesting was that these streams also kind of happened um during our green light campaign and this is a decision that we had kind of like waffled on. Like, do we launch a, the, the Greenlight campaign at launch or do we launch it ahead of the launch? And like, that was a pretty interesting um, set of decisions we made. And I think it ultimately ended up pretty well. Well, and one step back there, uh, uh, if you guys remember, we our initial plan was to go... Sales Greenlight. Yeah, everywhere <laughs> except for Greenlight. And so it was all these various platforms. We were going to launch a Wizard's Lizard everywhere. Uh, hoped that that garnered enough attention at that time uh, to, to, uh, to, to magically find its way into or, or have the Steam people actually start returning some of my emails and we could point them to the success that the game was seeing outside of that. Um, we ultimately, as we became closer, decided that Greenlight was going to be the, the most valuable route to go. But I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think... A week before we were going to start launching the the press outreach. So let's see if we launched the game on January twenty second. I think we started. I started the major press outreach a week and a half before then. It was like the eighth of January. Yeah, yeah, maybe two weeks. Yeah. But the day before I started that campaign, we had 
gone back and forth as to whether or not we were going to legitimize the green light campaign and actually have the uh, the URL out there live, or if we were just going to let people know that the green light campaign was going to launch the day of the game. And and in hindsight, we obviously made the right decision, but at the time, it wasn't that that obvious. We were agonizing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, and, and it would have been clunky had we not made the green light campaign live because we basically would have been asking for coverage uh, from all these various uh, outlets and, and streamers and also letting them know that uh, we'll, we'll provide them a URL, but that URL is not going to be live till the 22nd. And our whole thought process around, <laughs> around initially evaluating this, this path was that we knew we were going to see a bump, uh, just an organic bump the day that the game went, uh, went oh, live right. on Greenlight. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, and we wanted to try to, I think, tar- uh, 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 consolidate to the best of our ability as much interest towards that, that first day as possible. Uh, really glad we decided not to do that because I think uh, t- two reasons, obviously having that uh, campaign uh, live uh, uh, helped in the coverage that we were able to see prior to the game going live on the 22nd. And then... Um, uh, well, I guess that, that that in and of itself was important because I think we had a very successful green light campaign that we yeah. were not. We, we were very. Uh, we were hoping for. Yeah, we were hoping <laughs> for. Uh, but it went it, it went better than I think our expectations at that point. It's <laughs> funny, we, Jeff and I have, have ran a, a terrible failure of, of a green light campaign, you know, and and now we've been involved with a green light campaign that was successful within a month. It got greenlit, and I I think that's a runaway success in my mind because you know. A scapegoat took a year, you know, and I, I don't think we've made a better game, you know, like who's to say? I still think it's like, I don't know, roll the dice, man. Like, yep. I still don't know what it takes to get on green light, but uh, I am glad we happened to make the decisions we did. Yeah. We agonized over it plenty. Um, the, it was a, it was, it, it's easy to say now, like what the right decision was because it worked out. But at the time, like we, we would spend hours just talking about like when to launch it, whether to launch it. Cause around that time too, we were hearing about, uh, was it paranormal activity or maybe something else, but the game where they were on green light and then they got a publisher lined up Oh yes. and that screwed yes. up their ability. So like we thought it might be aggressively bad. Like, I don't know. We didn't really know, but, uh, but it all worked out. Yeah, and, and, and sort of the ambiguity involved with the green light cam- uh, pr- process was constantly changing. So even though I, like when we first started working together, we were dead set on not going down the green light campaign. It had improved uh, uh, by the time that we ultimately made the decision. I think we felt more comfortable with it, but we were still very hesitant to go down that path, to say the least. Yeah, we were. And I remember when we should probably talk about this, too. But when we were at Good Game Club, which was a little press event, um, I th- what was that, January? or uh, no uh December? was it the fall yeah maybe uh october i guess wow when did we so uh, when did we officially make the name change i think it was oh it was at html5 DevConf. it was like right after or during so that must have been november okay yeah november that's right or something anyways yeah mid-novemberish um yeah so uh we had attended this event and um i i had talked to one of those guys from rps and and i said we were not going to do green light and he was like what like why aren't you going to do green light like i want to hear about this um and i don't think that was any source of coverage or anything but it really kind of speaks to like i think that we were we we thought that we could like end run it you know we're like we're not going to go down this route like green lights for suckers like you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna attack this a different way and, and then hopefully have some results and it I think that the place that Valve's at right now, that's just not a possibility. I think yeah. that they're very solidly like green light. Like that's the way you do it right now. And we understand that it's not ideal and it might suck in some regard, but 
that's the way it's done at the moment. Right. And so we kind of finally came around to that and decided to launch it. And I, I think that the, you know, the quote unquote secret to Greenlight is that it's a campaign just like say Kickstarter, right? And a lot of it hinges on your ability to drive external traffic to your page. Mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of got lucky uh, in the sense that we launched it about the right time for our game. Um, January was actually a kind of a quiet month for games, so I think that helped a little bit. Uh, but certainly the streamer activity, because not only you know were we pimping our game during these streaming and, and seeing pre-sales, but we were also seeing you know people going to our green light, and like that's a very easy thing to ask someone to do. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, this game looks interesting, buy it, and you're like, well, maybe. Um, but hey, this game looks interesting. Just press this yes button. Right, vote it up. Right, and so I think we saw a lot, a lot of our our bump in, in green light. You can see this on the graph in green light uh, came from those those streams. Right. Well, I think uh, you bring up a, a good point. I don't know if you guys remember when we made the the very conscious decision to launch in January um, because we weren't going to hit the Halloween date, uh, which was the initial launch for Crypt Run. Right. Um, and then we were like, oh well, maybe we maybe we could target November. Um, uh, maybe we could target uh, December. And we, we said, well, why don't we even look later on? Because November is going to be chock full of PlayStation 4 and Xbox One news. And then, uh, and then December is the, with the holidays and, and, and all the, the press coverage on, those, uh, on the new consoles. January ended up being very good, uh, I think, on that front. And, and to, 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 to highlight something else, I think what really helped on the Greenlight campaign was having a, a near complete game. I think when we launched the, the game was uh, again, two, two weeks, two and a half weeks away from, from actually being available to the general public. And so the, the new preview that we put out, like it was just a, a near polished game. And I think people were able to get a, a very good sense of, of what it was and, and that helped. I think a lot of people press the, uh, press the thumbs up button. Yeah, I think the video was also, it like converted well, you know, it was short, concise. It showed a lot of action. It was like, um it was clearly an action game, and like it just gave you kind of a taste. Like, here's a bunch of action happening real quiet, real fast. One minute, you're done. Yeah. It's like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll, I mean, that's worth clicking a button for. Like, I don't know if that convinced everybody to, to whip out their wallets, but it's like a good step, you know? Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't know. Green, green light is still like a giant, um, I guess, green block, green yeah. box, not black box. Hey. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's, it's still, yeah, it still feels like this complete unknown thing, even though we've been on both sides now, like a complete failure and a pretty good success. So, yeah. Well, Jeff was mentioning uh, this event in, uh, in downtown San Francisco in November called Good Game Club, where it was uh, a wizard's lizard and roughly, I think, uh, maybe 19 or so other uh, indie games from the area. Yeah, it was about that. Yeah. And, and so even back then, even though it was, uh, as Jeff mentioned, um, uh, it was a bit surprising that we were avoiding green light at that point when I would go out and, and chat with other people at that event who had gone down green light and it either failed or succeeded. Um, and I let them know that we're looking to avoid it at all costs. You, you would hear a mix of answers. There was no, there was no, uh, certainly no consensus like around you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, like some people who looked, some people who had succeeded at green light looked me in the eye and they said, that is the way to go. You guys made the right call. And so like, it's still, it, it, it's obviously in hindsight it's been successful which is fantastic but we just heard so many different opinions that it was very tough to i think decide what route to go and that's why i think we wavered so so much on it yeah well you know i think like matt was saying it's a lot of it comes down to timing and luck and it just in this particular scenario uh we were prepared um one thing i, I keep wanting to mention is that kind of 
running up to all of these events, um, we had a couple things in place that I think were really important. One is we had gotten a humble widget. And that's not something, I mean, you basically if you talk to them, I feel like you can get a humble widget. Um, but the larger point is to have something, right? Like you need a place that you can point people to and convert them. Like, I guess you'd call that the funnel, <laughs> like in the business world, right? You, right. you need, you need in the somewhere. BD world, yeah, that's, right? <laughs> that's a sales funnel. Oh, speaking Greg's language here, <laughs> <laughs> right? But you know, from a very early stage, Kryptron and then a Wizard's Lizard has had a place where you can go and you can pre-order the game. Um, and I like to think that that was a pretty important step to have at all points, you know, because as we started the press outreach and as we started the initial press push and the green light campaign and all these other things, you know, we had seen uh, pre-sales ramping up. <clears throat> I think that when we sent out the January 8th press build, that's when we actually started to see quite a bit of pre-orders coming in. And when I say quite a bit, I just mean, you know, 30 a day for a, f a few days, you know? Right. So we're not talking astronomical numbers, but we're talking a significant change in, in our status quo. Um, and so I think it, what's one of the things that you can do as an indie developer to kind of set yourself up for success is to have a couple of these key things in place before you start, you know, trying to get press and traffic is you need somewhere to take it. Yeah. Right. And, and ideally it should be something like canonical where it's like, you know, wizardslizard.com. Like that's how it was for us. And, you could see the video, you could get access to the green light campaign, you could pre-order the game all from this very simple one pager. Um, and it was a great resource to send out to press. It was a great place to send people that were interested in the game. And so just want to mention that that's a good kind of baseline to start with before you actually go through these steps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then also we hosted the press kit online. So right. uh, it was like, a, I think well, the URL was uh, uh, wizardlizard.com uh, slash press or something like that. Initially, we just had it as a packaged file that would send out. And so I think hosting it, not only to your, to your point of, uh, of, of just having this one destination, but we also included the press kit there. So it had like all the details where we just could direct people to. Right. Um, and that was, I, I heard from multiple press and streamer folks who said uh, they'd come back with a particular question, uh, and then by the time I, I was looking to respond or if they, they'd immediately find it and just be like, oh, I found it on the website. So like automating those things, making it as easy as possible for the people that you're try, trying to target to to find the relevant information, um, I, think, I, I think that's always a helpful exercise to go down. Yeah, definitely. I would actually notice that like we felt like we had pretty confirm. Um uh, what's that word that means uh, comprehensive <laughs> we, we had all the information there on the press kit uh, landing page but even then we'd be like someone would ask us what's system requirements yeah and we're like oh but it was good because we could just update that one place now like okay now we can point everybody there and uh in typical ldg fashion we uh, built it ourselves because that's how we do it but there is a uh, uh if you're indie developer you've probably heard of do press kit so i'll put a link in the show notes um that's something you could use as well i hear it's good um yeah, I was surprised because we actually had a conversation about that because it's like we kind of wanted to do everything one way, like have one press kit and like what I've always seen is like a zip file. Yeah. So I thought that was the norm. Um, but that's it has some disadvantages. Like I think a lot of people, especially in press, they got a lot going on. They'll download the file. You know, we have to pay, you know, pennies or whatever, but it, it adds up to, to give them that file. A lot of times like it sits on their hard drive and they don't unzip it. You know what I mean? So like I, I think that we saw some value in like the uh, the web interface of the press and it's like it's like a different it's like a slightly different use case you know because the landing page is like a like a portfolio you know or like not like a portfolio like a um 
Yeah, like, like a little manual. It's like, here's this, this little splash, like a little advertisement for the game. Like, we're just trying to be short and quick and sell you on the game as fast as possible. But then the press kit page is like, here's comprehensive. Here's mm-hmm. everything you want to know. The system requirements and the release date and the price and, like, the regions or whatever. And, yeah, it was like, I don't know. It felt like we did a good job of covering whatever, what anyone might need. You yeah. know, press kits around the board, lots of images. That's important. But, like, kind of like Jeff was saying, like, having the widget and all that, like, a big part of it's being prepared. I think that sometimes people can kind of tell that, you know? They're like, okay, what's this game in Greenlight? All right, yeah, I watched a video and whatever. Click on the webpage, like, oh, this looks legitimate. Yeah, that's actually legit. Yeah, Yeah, like, you click on the link, it takes you to some, like, this is clearly some malware or something, and you're like, ooh, (laughs) where am I? That's (laughs) right. Yeah, but I also think you you brought up a good point of, like, um, uh, when we were sending these emails out um, and you hear you hear certain press folks talk about this as well um, they get so many emails a day that uh, they're only going to respond to ones that are, uh, that, I th- that they think are crafted well um, but also if you have any hurdles for them to actually try your game try your build uh, get to the trailer if it's like password protected or any of these things um, oftentimes you, you'll you'll lose them you, you, there'll be a break along the way so they often uh, uh, you, you'll hear a lot of folks just say make it as dead easy as possible for me to get whatever assets uh, that you're sending to me um, and so I think we tried to between uh, we, we used a combination of Dropbox between I think like custom hosting through the press uh, press kit being uh, uh, part of was uh, was um, there were there were just various things that I think we did uh, a pretty good job on uh, just setting up to make it just dead simple to get them the, the information and the resources they needed in, in order to hopefully cover the game. I think what we'd, I'd like to try uh, next time perhaps is doing a web-based press demo um, because that's one point where we could remove even more friction mm. and it also plays to the strengths of HTML5, obviously, which we're big advocates of. Um, like I, I think you're absolutely right with the friction, you know, these people get so much email and there's this broad sea of things for them to look at and cover uh, that the easier you make it for them, the more success you're going to see. And that's not only true of press, but it's also true of players, right? Like uh, demos versus not is, is obviously something we've talked about yeah. <laughs> as well. And so I'm not completely sold that having a demo is always the right way, but just as a general rule, removing friction between your consumers, uh, whether it be press or players and your content um, it's just a good idea. Right. So um, did you want to talk a little bit about um, maybe the impact of uh, Good Game Club and then maybe like how what was that as beneficial, more beneficial than just the press outreach? Because I know we got to talk directly to some press folks. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, it, Good Game Club, I think, uh, again, I mentioned um, – there was maybe a total of 20-ish or, or, or so uh, indie games. And then the folks that uh, attended were, uh, I, think it was, I think it was a three-hour event for the first hour and a half. It was open solely to uh, uh, gaming press folks, um, most of those obviously being local to the Bay Area. And then uh, after that, it was just open to the public. So it was... It was high quality, but very low quantity. So we were able to actually like shake some hands and, and meet some some folks at some of the larger outlets and establish a, a, a relationship with them. But I think the only thing that we saw, uh, and, and I'm spitballing a few numbers here, but was probably solid coverage from, from personal relationships from that event uh, was with three contacts. Uh, so very low quantity, but, but high quality uh, uh, and compare that to the to the massive outreach that we did outside of that um 
it was the amount of, of eyeballs that we were able to get information to on the outreach was substantially more beneficial, I'd say, than, than what uh, uh, we were able to do from the press side at, at Good Game Club. But Good Game Club was valuable, I, again, just uh, from from a the personal relationship that you were able to have with these folks, but then that they also played your game, and then you were able to get your game in front of uh, of actual users to just to just get in and, and get the name out. One thing that, um, and so I, I, from a cost benefit standpoint, I think Good Game Club was was absolutely worth it. Um, one of the thing that we saw, uh, I can't remember the name of the studio. I think it may have been Whole Hog Games with their game uh, uh, Full Bore. They were able to have um, an iPad with Square. Uh, with uh, the uh, the Square payment technology, and so they were actually able to uh, get the public who came in to to pay for their game, um, and and I remember we both looked at that and we're like, that's, that's a, a hell idea. of an idea. Yeah, <laughs> I think ne- next time we do a live demo, uh, we should totally do that. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to kind of talk about like the benefit of that because I also thought that doing Good Game Club um, was highly beneficial, and not just because of the press contacts, but like you mentioned, getting your game in front of players is, is really interesting. Um, you know, with a demo or a video, it's hard to judge how people react to it other than people that leave comments, but that's, you know, a very small number usually. Um, and we'd also done California extreme where we also got to see a lot of people playing the game and watching people's reactions and watching where they get stuck in the game and the things they don't understand. You know, it's almost akin to user testing, but not in a, such a controlled environment. You know, it's kind of a little ad hoc. But you still get a lot of benefits. Like you get to watch someone play and run into the rough spots in your game and mm-hmm. kind of note like, oh, this is just a bad experience, you know. W- was Good Game Club the one where RPS uh, had you on tape talking about the game? Yeah, that was the one, actually. that was I, was, I alluded to that earlier when um, that conversation kind of started when I was telling him we weren't going to do Greenlight. And he's like, oh, you're not going to do Greenlight. Like, tell me all about that. <laughs> and I had to put like... Put me on the spot. Yeah, he put me on the spot and... Uh, I don't think I've ever watched that video. I hate watching myself on, you know, any kind of recording. You actually did a really good job, Jeff. I was, uh, I was like, very impressed. Uh. <laughs> I should do that more often. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was hard because I didn't feel like we had a lot of really solid, good reasons for not doing Greenlight, other than like we were kind of in the mindset that, you know, we just didn't want to because we thought it wasn't worth it and we didn't know how it worked and the benefit was, you know, hard to quantify. Yeah. And so. Um, and obviously we ended up, you know, reversing our decision, but, uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It was a pretty good, it was a pretty good event. Um, all in all, I, w- I would totally do it again. And we're planning doing California extreme again this year. So I would encourage anybody that's, it has the opportunity to attend a live event that it's usually very worth it, um, for your game, just m- for nothing else than to just gauge the reaction in real time of people playing it. Absolutely. And then as you like, even though for us, like the, 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 the quantity was low from the press folks. I mean, we still made, we connected with a ton of other indie developers there. Um, we ended up meeting a couple of, uh, of, of like more traditional publishers. Um, they ended up not being a fit, but it was still like great to, to get out there and, 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 and meet these folks. So like when possible, and to your point, I would encourage everybody to, to evaluate the, the costs, of course, but when possible, like go to these things, get out there, meet other folks, check out other games and just uh, get your get your game out in front of people. So there was something similar last night that we tried to get into, uh, but we didn't make the cut. 
it was uh is it called the mix the mix so that's that was right. like the one of the first events for for gdc although i guess it's not specifically involved with gdc but gdc is so massive that there's all these like things that pop up <laughs> around it just to give the industry folks something to do on the off hours right. and stuff and so yeah last night we didn't get in uh we wanted to because I, I think at this point we're at we're pretty convinced that any place where you get to showcase your game to press or to gamers or industry or whoever it's it's like every single time we've done it, it's been completely worthwhile um so we were sad to miss out on that but uh you got to stop by what was what was that like yeah it was um uh it, it was like good game club uh but but times two i'd say so i think they have roughly oh, wow. had like yeah they really had 40 games uh about twice the amount of space if not a bit more um and it was it was jam-packed um to your point, it would have been great if we would we would have been able to participate and, and showcase our game. Um, but just as a, f- uh, it, it was my first GDC party, I, I guess. Right? Yeah. yeah, which uh, is what everybody's been telling me is like the actual benefit of GDC is actually like all the parties. That yeah, there's a whole website, it's, uh, gdcparties.com. There's a, a Facebook group, and they have a really terrible app for Android or something. <laughs> well, and then you sent me a spreadsheet with like. Yeah, there's like that? a, a public editable, yeah, like Google spreadsheet <laughs> with just all these GDC parties. And like, I think the reason that the parties are the most beneficial uh, is because like you go to the talks and, and they have value and it's great. And like, you can even interact right there with the speakers. You can ask questions and, and you just can't get that anywhere else. But from my experience, like a lot of the talks you can get, you know, later, yeah. um, like the following week, they actually have an audio, like, I don't know, you can buy a ticket for like 500 bucks to get all of their talks on audio. But a lot of them always surface uh, later where uh, there's like a whole video of the presentation, just exactly as you would have seen it when you're there. Um, and yeah, like uh, just being there is quite different and it has a lot of value, but, uh, it's interesting because like, unless you're very much in the education process and you're very much learning and you want to go to JDC, you want to go to GDC to like go to the summits tutorials and learn how to do all this stuff. Um, I think that most of the value is just like in establishing connections. Like we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier, like there's just so much value there because you never hear about any one person or any one individual. Like it's so rare when they just. They have this great success, completely all on their own. You know, it's like people work together, organizations right. work together, groups work together, and like, you know, you go to a go to a party. There's like open bars, and you know, you get one drink in you, and you're like more talkative, and you, and you meet a buddy, and like, that was cool. We just met a buddy, and like two years later, it pays off. Like, yep. oh hey, I've got this person I know at this place, and that helped me close this deal or whatever. And I guess that's why the the parties seem to have like I don't know what the most value, but they they have significant value. Yeah, completely agree. And and I know we've talked about this uh, in the past, but just your ability to to get out and actually meet meet folks in person, like it's one thing to make a connection or even do business and uh, and even just do it over uh, Google Hangouts, Skype, whatever it may be. But to actually go there, there's still like technology has not been able to solve like the shake of the hand and just like yeah. hanging out with somebody in person. Yeah. Like that still has not been able to get to be solved it, yet. I mean, we're still people, you know, like we might just be voices to you. We might just be a Twitter stream or like, you know, someone else might just be a Facebook page to you, but like there's people behind all these things and you just cannot beat that face to face. You know, you shake a hand, you remember that someone sends you an email later and like, Hey, I'm this random, I'm this random text on the internet. You know, it's you're much more likely to get hit there. If it's like, Hey, you met me yesterday. We shook hands. Like, remember and the, you know, I'm a human. I'm a human being. <laughs> Treat me like one. I have rights. That's right. But yeah, you really can't beat it. Um, so yeah, this is a Tuesday of GDC. So we got uh, three today, the rest of today, and three more days. Um, anything fun on your agenda? I'm hopefully going to be tagging on to, to to where you guys are heading because I need some uh, I need some expert opinions on, <laughs> on where to spend time. Uh, outside of your guys' talk tomorrow. 
which I'm looking forward to. Uh, there are a couple other like major parties like i, I think that are open yeah. to everybody that, that i'll probably head to the outside of that party yes. uh, is a pretty big one just like at the ballpark yeah like, like the whole ballpark it sounds really impressive yeah um yeah so that's a good segue actually to uh to our uh, our round table tomorrow um so today is uh march 19th tomorrow is our talk it'll be march 20th 2014 so uh, we know a lot of people listen to this far future so apologies <laughs> but uh it'll probably be online by the time you listen to this um it's tomorrow 3 30 p.m uh pst and if you're here live at gdc you can come it's at the uh the intel uh booth uh on the expo floor 3 30 uh, p.m it's called the future of cross-platform development and it's a, it's a round table with uh with me and jeff and some other fine folks and um yeah, come and check it out. And if you're, you know, not in the area, which is true for the vast majority of listeners, uh, you can also go online, uh, and you can hang out with us on the Google Hangout while it's happening. And uh, I will put links to uh, the event and the Google Hangout in the show notes. I have to correct you because it's the nineteenth. What? That's happening, not the twentieth. <laughs> oh. Today's the eighteenth. Yes. Tomorrow's the nineteenth. So it's nineteenth at three thirty uh, p.m. Uh, in the Expo Hall at the Intel booth. And will it be you guys and uh, a couple other shops, or will it just be solely you and, and Intel folks? Yeah, so there's going to be an independent moderator. Um, I think his name is Chris Pirelli, or Pirelli, something like that. Uh, probably going to butcher it. But, and then there's two Intel developers and then us um, doing this talk. And so nice. uh, they're probably going to talk about uh, the different open source initiatives Intel have uh, related to cross-platform gaming. And then obviously Matt and I are going to be there as kind of like you know, people in the trenches that have tried some things and floundered around wildly <laughs> trying to put games all over the place. Nice. So that's what we're up to. And uh, if you're around tomorrow, uh, check it out. And if you're listening in the far future, um, hopefully there'll be a video online that you can check out. Um, so Greg, uh, what uh, what kind of surface, uh, like, uh, services uh, are, are you uh, ready to offer? And like, how should people reach out to you? Like, what's a good way to connect with you and see if there's a way that you know, you can collaborate with uh, some of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know we hit on a, a lot of this in, in the talk today, but uh, anytime you're looking for, I'd say, platform and, and press services and, and you're not looking to, to handle that internally, uh, go to whippering.com, uh, check out the, the site if it seems to be a, a fit to, to learn more. Uh, just love to chat. Um, glove at whippering.com. Glove. Glove. It's so glove fun. Glove at whippering.com. Glove is a great name. I know. Obviously started the, the, the company and the site, so I, did, I had to decide, like, should I just go Greg at whippering.com or should I just keep glove? And I, I stuck with glove. On the way over here, I meant to say something uh, that we should call it Lovecast because <laughs> you're on it. But I forgot <laughs> earlier in the show. Can we still, can we make that change? Or <laughs> no? Yeah, I, I love that. But yeah, reach out, um, and at a minimum, even if it's not a fit, um, I love just meeting other folks, checking games, and uh, checking games out, and would be more than happy to to send you resources that I've found uh, that I've found very uh, valuable as I've uh, s started doing this. Um, again, there's not a lot. It, it, there's nothing secret that we do. I just think that that we can we can execute in a, in a really thoughtful manner. Uh, but a lot of the, the the stuff that we've been able to discover is public, and I'm more than happy to share that with uh, with various folks. Very cool. So, uh, yeah, if, even if you're just thinking about it, reach out to Greg. He won't bite. Uh, he's the friendliest guy on the planet. And uh, just have a conversation, you know. Something might come of it. Or like we were talking about earlier, sometimes you just plant a seed, you know. Maybe there's not something you can work out today, but maybe next year when you ramp up or whatever.
Uh, but yeah, thanks a lot for being on the show, Greg. No, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I think the last time I was part of a podcast, it was like some completely uninteresting enterprise thing I was doing with like Badgeville or something. Oh, so. we got to dig this up. Yeah. <laughs> if I can find it, I'll put it at the, at the, as the sting oh, no. at the end. Oh, no, I shouldn't have mentioned it. No, but it's been a lot of fun. So I appreciate you guys having me. Awesome. So yeah, uh, contact Greg. And uh, if you're around for it tomorrow, uh, join us at the developer roundtable. And uh, we'll see you in a week. Ship it.